So I want to share a true story with you. In 1975, in Cologne, Germany, there was a very ambitious high school student who loved jazz music when no one else around her seemed to uh, have any interest. And so at 16 years old, she became a concert promoter. And unbelievably, she got some quite high-profile musicians to come to her West German audience. But in 1975, she didn't realize she was going to change the jazz world. Keith Jarrett, one of the most well-known solo improvisatory jazz pianists in the world, was doing a European tour. And she persuaded the Cologne Opera House to host him. With 1,400 seats, it would be one of the largest ever concert jazz performances in Germany, as well as one of the largest audiences that Jared had faced. Like many musicians, Jared was a perfectionist who wanted things just so. And he had requested a specific kind of piano for this performance. But when he got to the venue and met the young promoter, he was displeased, to say the least. First of all, it wasn't a grand piano. It was a baby grand. It was terribly out of tune. Some of the keys didn't work. The higher keys, the higher registers, didn't resonate properly, and they sounded tinny. And on top of that, one of the pedals didn't work. <laughs> Frankly, it sounds like the piano many of us have in our living rooms. Nice for furniture, I suppose, but not for a professional pianist who is also a perfectionist. The piano was a disaster. And after giving it a try for a few minutes, Jarrett knew that this was not going to work. And so he told the 16-year-old that there was no way that this would work. And so with his manager by his side, he turned around and he walked out. And, he, and as he left, the 16-year-old turned concert promoter literally ran after him and begged, begged him to reconsider. 1,400 paying customers would not be happy if he didn't show up. Somehow, she convinced him, and he agreed to come back. So as quickly as they could, some technicians repaired the piano as best they could, but most of the problems remained. You can't fix a piano in an hour. There was nothing else they could do in such a short time. Jarrett and his manager had previously planned to record this concert, and now they almost didn't bother. But they thought that since the technicians have already been booked and paid for, what harm can there be in recording it? It can be fun to recall this catastrophe one day. And it didn't turn out that way. In fact, what happened 
was pure magic. The recording of that concert is the best-selling solo album in jazz history. People that were there said that his concert was magical. The level of focus that Jared brought to his craft was mesmerizing. On the fly, he adapted new ways of playing to cover up for the problems of the piano. It was specifically playing on an imperfect instrument that made him stretch his music. An imperfect instrument played on an imperfect night and it made musical history. Kind of sounds like Yum Kipper, right? I mean, what is Yum Kipper? Other than a day for imperfect people who are all imperfect instruments, living imperfect lives with other, with other imperfect people, living in an imperfect world, and trying to create a more perfect and meaningful life. And the symbol of all of that is our 26-hour fast. But why fasting? Well, if you've ever gone to religious school, which you have, you've probably heard an answer like this. The purpose of fasting is to bring someone to repent. And true repentance brings about a change in actions. However, repenting without fasting is not enough. On a more spiritual level, someone once suggested that fasting is an opportunity for each of us to observe Yom Kippur in a most personal way. It is a day of intense self-searching and earnest communication with the Almighty. This search requires an internal calm, which derives from slowing down our biological rhythm. Fasting on Yom Kippur provides the key to our inner awakening. These are both reasonable explanations, and they are offered simply because the Torah is intentionally vague about Yom Kippur. And when things are vague, Jews love to fill in the holes. We assume we fast on Yom Kippur because that is what we have always done and are expected to. But the fast is crying out, Darshani, figure me out. The truth is that the Torah never specifies fasting on Yom Kippur. It simply says, Va'anitem et nafshotechem, you shall afflict or restrict or impoverish your souls. Now, by the time we get to the later prophet Isaiah, Fasting on Yom Kippur seems to have already been a common practice. But the Torah doesn't say that directly. With vague, vague language, the Torah says, Anitem, control, restrict, practice self-denial. On Yom Kippur, the Torah is telling us, stretch yourself to do something difficult. My father-in-law of blessed memory was always insightful. Almost certainly over coffee and burekas or bulemas, Turkish treats that always overflowed at Stella's house, we got into the geography of the Talmud once, and later literature. This was table talk, by the way. In Babylon, the birthplace of the Talmud, and in Europe, 
the birthplace of the commentaries and later the codes, life was rough. The winters were brutal, yes, even in the desert, and the summers in Europe and the Middle East are intolerable pre-air conditioning. And yet, despite all of this, Jewish masterpieces were written. But it goes deeper than that. It's not so much that despite all the difficulties, but rather because of all the difficulties. It is the difficulties, the challenges that elicit creativity. And to add an exclamation mark to it, my father-in-law asked the rhetorical question as only he could. When he said, how many great pieces of literature and philosophy come from Fiji and Aruba? Now, he was being chauvinistic, but it does seem true that great works of art come from struggle and brokenness, extreme seasons, and difficult lives. A colleague of mine noted that fasting at the beginning of the year may be an annual reminder that the presence of some kind of adversity is necessary for us to thrive. Of course, too much adversity, too much challenge wears us down. You may have heard of Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Rimanov. He was a 19th century Hasidic master, and he noted a phrase in the Talmud that says, salt can make meat more palatable. And salt, he says, is a good metaphor for character building in the aspects of suffering. And the Rebbe of Romanov said, this is actually even a better metaphor than the rabbis of the Talmud realized. Yes, a small amount of salt makes the meat more palatable, but too much salt makes the meat inevitable. A little adversity is healthy. Too much adversity we could all do without. Everyone in this sanctuary tonight Everyone online has experienced adversity. Some of us have been overwhelmed by it. Some of us have trundled through it. But no matter the intensity of the adversity, each of us was formed in it one way or the other. And where do we find the strength to go on? Almost always there were others who helped us out of the pit. Martin Buber's idea of the best relationships were the I-thou relationships. When we were somebody's thou, or somebody was our thou, things weren't so dark. The struggle was still real. But the simple fact that we knew that we weren't alone somehow made the difference. We often emerged from the darkness. We took much more creative control of our lives. The Yom Kippur fast is a symbol of our suffering, of our affliction, of our discomfort. And through the prayers of this day and the reflections that the next 25 hours will bring, we become different people. The outside looks the same, but if we take the message of the holy day to heart, our insides are altogether different. And that's what makes each of us truly special, truly beautiful. You know the name Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was the insightful psychologist who immortalized the five stages of death and dying. She worked with thousands of patients who were all in at least one stage of suffering, of dying. 
And she said, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, who have known suffering, who have known struggle, who have known loss, and who have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and deep loving concern. Beautiful people, she teaches us, do not just happen. And then she tells this story. Over the years, I've learned that every life, circumstance, even a crisis, can nourish a soul. Recently, the farm and home that I loved so much for so many years burned down in a horrible fire. Everything I owned, without exception, was lost. And there was even speculation that foul play was involved. And at moments like this, she says, we stand at a fork in the road. If we take the fork one way, we collapse. We give up. We feel hopeless. We feel defeated. We focus on the negative. We lose ourselves in the problem. We point to our unhappy circumstances, and then we rationalize our negative feelings. This, she says, is the easy way out because it takes almost no effort to feel like a victim. But she says we can take the other fork. We can view the unhappy experience as an opportunity for, if nothing else, a new beginning. We can keep our perspective. We can look for a glimmer of hope. We can find an inner reservoir of strength. I am not suggesting that we chase after adversity. I am not suggesting that each of us in this new year goes looking after terrible life moments. Those moments are going to find us whether we want them to or not. Yom Kippur, the fast, this holy day, is an open and honest admission that there is never such a thing as an easy year. It is not surprising, as I spoke about last week, that the greeting for the year is Shana Tova, may you have a good year and not Happy New Year. A new year is something we can help to create. A happy one, eh, maybe not so much. Maybe fasting is our way to start out a good year by simply saying, we know that we'll face challenges in this new year. Let them be the kind of challenges, though, that make us grow. Because our souls grow when we do hard things. Our minds are fully activated when we do challenging things. We are more likely to connect more deeply with others when we do hard things. Our lives, and we're so aware of it on Yom Kippur, are like that broken down piano. First we balk, but then something stirs in us, and the music we can create is profound. And in fact, when we create that music in our lives, despite the tsuras, despite the challenges, despite the pain and the tears, we are imitating God. The ancient Rabbi Alexandria is quoted as saying in the Midrash, when a common man uses a broken vessel, he is ashamed of it, but not with the Holy One. All the instruments at God's service 
are broken vessels. Because, of course, the instrument that God uses to accomplish God's work are each of us. We are broken. We are stumbling. But we are not finished. Shana Tova, a good year.